always thankful to have visitors with us. We had really hard rain this morning, and the rains came down, and I guess you could say from a number standpoint, the bottom fell out. We were missing a lot of people today, but hopefully and prayerfully they'll be back next week. We're glad that Brother Jesse's with us tonight. We're glad that he's with us and his family. He said he's in town celebrating his grandson's first birthday, and that that's always a great time, and we certainly want to express our well wishes to his grandson and to his family. We're going to be looking at John chapter 1, and as we study tonight, we want to think about the Word who became flesh. In the first chapter of John, and by the way, the book of John is a great book, and in this book, John the Apostle writes in an effort to develop faith in the lives of people. Really the purpose of the book is so that people might come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so when we look at chapter 1, there are two very important things that John introduces us to about Jesus. First of all, he begins by talking about his pre-incarnate state. And then secondly, he talks about his incarnate state. His pre-incarnate state simply refers to his pre-existent state, that is, before he took bodily form. His incarnate state is a reference to the fact that he became flesh, as Ben read for us a moment ago. And John would say, he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so I want us to think for a minute or two about this word who became flesh. I think it's very important for us to understand that Jesus was and is the divine Son of God. And everything that the Bible says about him, his character, his nature, it is true. And so we ought to put our faith and trust in him and live for him who is described by Paul as the King of kings and Lord of lords. We begin by, first of all, talking about his pre-incarnate state. As we think about the pre-incarnate state of Christ, there are four things that I would call attention to. It's all found in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. First of all, let me call attention to the constancy of the word. Listen, if you would, to what John said. In the beginning was the Word. When you think about the Word, and the Word here is a reference to the second member of the Godhead, Jesus, the eternal Logos. And so from the vantage point of his constancy, all we're talking about is that Jesus has always existed. He is not a created being, as some would claim today. But rather, Jesus has always existed with God the Father. You can go back to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we are introduced to the Godhead, God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For example, in Genesis 1.26, the Bible says, Let us make man. Plural. Jesus was the agent by which man and the world were created. And I'll have more to say about that in just a moment. But the point is, Jesus has always existed. 
In Micah chapter 5 at verse 2, and Micah wrote some 700 years before Jesus ever made his entrance into the world. And Micah foretold the birthplace of the eternal word, the Logos, the Son of God. He pinpointed his birthplace as Bethlehem. But in that context, he said, whose goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting. Now the footnote in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, from days of eternity or from the days of eternity. And all that is is a reference to the eternal nature of Jesus. He has always existed. Furthermore, not only has he always existed, but his nature is unchanging. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. So the constancy of the word. But then there's a second thing let me call your attention to, and that is the communion of the word. Listen again to what John said. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This brings to mind the communion, the fellowship that Jesus or the eternal word has always enjoyed with God the Father. In John chapter 17, Jesus said, in, really in the shadow of the cross, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So Jesus stood right alongside God the Father and the Holy Spirit. There has been that intimate communion throughout all of eternity. I'm not sure that I can wrap my mind around the fact that God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, the Holy Spirit are eternal beings. They have always existed. There's never been a time when they were not. But that's the nature of the case. And so we think about this close-knit relationship that existed between God the Father and the Word. You remember in Philippians chapter 2 when Paul talks about the mind of Christ. And in that context, he talks about Jesus emptying himself and taking the form of a servant. Jesus left the glories of heaven, the communion that he had enjoyed from time eternal with God the Father to come to earth and fulfill the redemptive plan of Almighty God. And so there is the constancy of the word and then the communion of the word. But then note also in the third place, the character of the word. John said in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Now note, and the word was God. We're not talking about some average man here, but rather we're talking about deity. John said, the Word, that's a reference to Jesus, the eternal Logos. He said the Word was God. What's that say to us? It says that everything the Bible says about the deity of Christ is true. And John is placing his stamp of approval through the Holy Spirit on the fact that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the divine Son of God. Now, in John chapter 8, you remember Jesus said in John 8, verse 24, except you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. All, all Jesus was saying there is this. Unless you come to believe that I am who I claim to be, the divine Son of God, you'll die in your sins. 
It is a prerequisite. We have to come to believe that Jesus is everything he claimed, everything he claimed to be and that he is the Son of God. Now in verse 58 of John chapter 8, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. The great I am, underscoring the eternal nature of Jesus and the fact that he is deity. Now, if you go back and look at verse 24 again, where Jesus said, except you believe that I am he, the translator supplied the term he. In the original, that word is not present. And what Jesus is saying is, except or unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. Go back and read Exodus chapter 3 when God appeared to Moses and he identified himself as the great I am. One of the, one of the, one of the criticisms that was often leveled at Jesus was that he wasn't the son of God. There were any number of people in the first century that did not believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And yet John said he wrote this book. And in this book we have seven signs and those signs or miracles point to the deity of Christ. There are seven I am statements in this book. And inherent in those statements we have the facts. He is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. So John said, look, these things I've written to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And so, the character of the word. And then there is a fourth thing that I want to call your attention to. And that is the creation of the word. Listen to what it said in verse 3. All things were made through him and without him was nothing made that was made. God the Father was the architect of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When you begin to look at scripture, you find that Jesus was the agent by which the world and man were made. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10, the writer said, And you, O Lord, laid the foundations of the earth, the heavens are the works of your hands. Jesus was the one that created this universe. In Colossians chapter 1, the Bible says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him were all things made, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were made by him and for him. And he is before all, all things, and in him all things consist. Jesus is the creator. Now, to our young folks, I would say this. One day you're going to sit in a college or a university classroom and you're going to have somebody who has a PhD degree out beside his or her name. And they're going to try to tell you that this world is the product of evolution or some cataclysmic explosion. My encouragement to you, don't listen to them. They don't know what they're talking about. I remember when Braden was just a little fella and we had this small, I guess you would say it was a, somewhat of a paraphrase children's Bible. It had pictures in it, etc. 
And it's very easy to read. So I would read to him from that every night. I never will forget one night I was sitting on his bed and I was reading to him as I did every night. And we were reading from the book of Ezekiel about the valley of dry bones, about those bones coming together and the flesh coming together. And I, I remember reading that story to him. And when I got done, he looked at me and he said this, yeah, right. Now, I thought, great, I'm raising, I'm raising an unbeliever. But what I would say to you is, when you hear Dr. So-and-so tell you that this world is the product of chance, you say, yeah, right. It's just not so. Jesus was the agent by which this world was made. Now, Paul said, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Just because you have a degree in higher education does not make you an authority on how our world came into existence. You can be an educated fool. And there are a lot of educated fools in our world today. That's just the fact of the matter. All right, let's think secondly. We talk about the pre-incarnate word. Now consider with me, if you would, the incarnate word. The incarnate word is a reference to Jesus taking bodily form. And so as we think about that, first of all, I want to talk about the manifestation of the word. Drop down and look, if you would, at verse 14. In verse 14, the Bible says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In order for Jesus to inhabit human flesh, two things were necessary. First of all, he needed a body. Secondly, he had to be born. And guess what? The Bible talks about both. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer there takes us back to the book of Psalms. And he said, sacrifice and offering you would not. But then he said, but a body you have prepared for me. He's talking about Jesus. You see, in order for Jesus to become flesh, he had to inhabit a human body. In Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says that Jesus became flesh, didn't it? Taking the form of a man, being made in the likeness of a man. Jesus was God incarnate. He inhabited human flesh. Paul would say in Colossians chapter 2, at about verse 9, in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, at some point in time in the very near future, I, I want to do a lesson on the Antichrist because there are a lot of people that there, there are a lot of people that have a lot of questions about the Antichrist, and it has fueled a lot of speculations. And there were people in the first century that were denying the bodily presence, the incarnate Christ. And so in the book of 1 John and 2 John as well, John wrote to combat that era. And you can see John, in an effort to combat that era, literally piles evidence after evidence so that he can leave his readers with the impression that, hey, Jesus did come in the flesh. 
For example, in 1 John chapter 1, John said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which our eyes have looked upon, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. He said, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. What's John saying there? He's saying, look, we heard him, we saw him, we touched him, He's trying to emphasize that Jesus did indeed come in the flesh. Now, those who were antichrist, John said they were denying that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And John said even now there are many antichrists. And I want us to spend a lesson and talk about that. But the point is, as we think about the word and the fact that Jesus became flesh, it's important. It's important for us to understand that it required a body and then a birth. Isaiah, for example, back in Isaiah chapter 7, foretold of the virgin birth. Think about this, 750 years before the word became flesh, Isaiah said it's going to happen. He said a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Can you imagine 750 years before an event occurs, talking about it with accuracy. Matthew says in Matthew chapter 1 that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. That which had been conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit. The angel of God said, she shall bring forth a son and you will call his name Jesus for it is he that shall save his people from their sins. He went on to say, all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being translated or interpreted is God with us. What does that suggest to us? That Jesus inhabited human flesh. So in order for Jesus to fulfill the redemptive plan, when we talk about the manifestation of Jesus, it required a body, and secondly, it required a birth. And Matthew tells us in chapter 2 that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And by the way, where did Micah say that Jesus would be born? In Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Again, fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now there's a second thing I want you to see. And that is the majesty of the word. Listen to what John said. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The word beheld here doesn't mean some casual glance. But rather it carries with it the idea of inspection, investigation. And so John the apostle and the other apostles they had the opportunity to examine Jesus firsthand, didn't they? You remember again what John said? We heard him. We saw him. Our eyes looked upon him. Our hands have handled him. He said, we've seen him. We've heard him. We've touched him. They saw his miracles. They listened to him over and over again. For some three and a half years, the apostles had the opportunity to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. They had the opportunity to eat with him, to listen 
to countless sermons, to asking questions. They had the privilege of being with Jesus and they had the opportunity to investigate or to, or to inspect him for that period of time. Now let me just pause here and say this. If we're going to have the kind of faith that we ought to have, then we need to do some investigating ourselves. We need to inspect or examine the scriptures. The only way that you're going to come to a better understanding of Jesus, the only way that you're ever going to come to appreciate his nature, his character, who he is and what he's done, is by spending time in this book that we call the Bible. You remember what Paul said, study to show yourselves approved unto God? Study. Peter said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How can you grow? You can't grow if you don't know the word of God. That's just, it's just, it's just a fact. You've got to spend time in this book. Now with regard to the apostles investigating or inspecting Jesus, Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 talks about Jesus when he was transfigured on the mount or on the mountain as recorded by Matthew in chapter 17. And he talked about how he had not related, well, he said, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You see, they had the opportunity to see firsthand Jesus transfigured before them. They heard the voice that came forth from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So, in looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, as we think about the majesty of the Lord, there is investigation or inspection, and then there is identification. You see, they inspected him and they ID'd him. They ID'd him as the divine son of God. Peter said, look, we heard that voice from heaven. And that voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Now going back by way of application to us, we investigate, we inspect what the scriptures have to say, and then we have to draw our conclusions, don't we? Listen to what John said. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When they inspected the Lord, when they investigated the claims that were made by him, when they observed the miracles that were performed and listened to what he had to say, what do you think their conclusion was? Listen to Peter. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Jesus then asked, but whom do you say that I am? Simon Peter spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In John chapter 6, when Jesus made the, declar the declaration, 
I am the bread of life. John said many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. So Jesus asked the question, will you also go away? Peter then asked, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you alone have the words of life eternal. And we believe, we've come to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So, having said that, it's incumbent on us to see the majesty of the word. And then very quickly, let me talk about the mission of the word. What was the mission of the word? Well, first of all, Jesus came as a light to the world. Back up and look, if you would, at verse 4. Here's what John said. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the dark, darkness did not comprehend it or apprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man who comes into the world. Let me pause here and just say this. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth after me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. When Jesus came into the world, the world was engulfed in spiritual darkness, wasn't it? Jesus would say in John chapter 3, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. The world in which we live is shrouded in darkness. It's under the dominion of the devil. As a matter of fact, Paul said he's the God of this world. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, John said the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So you have this world darkened and doomed by sin. And here is Jesus, the light of the world, coming to dispel the darkness that's engulfing man. Sadly, as Jesus said, many people love darkness rather than light. So Jesus came as a light to the world, and he came to give life to the world. Listen to what John said back in verse 4. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Think for a minute about all the Old Testament prophecies and all the sacrifices that were offered under the Old Covenant. Those sacrifices could not save. They anticipated the coming of a Messiah. So when Jesus came, Jesus came to give man what? Life. Jesus came to do what those Old Testament sacrifices could never do. The Hebrew writer said they could never take away sin. But this man, Jesus, came that we might have life. Here's what he said in chapter 10, verse 10. I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. In 1 John chapter 5, John said this is a testimony that God has sent his son why? That we might enjoy everlasting life? He said, he that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son of God does not have life. When we come to a relationship, when we enjoy a relationship with the Lord, we have life. 
How do we enjoy a relationship with God? Well, in John chapter 3, Jesus talked about how we become a part of the kingdom. How we become a part of his body. When he talked to Nicodemus, he said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse 5, he said, verily, verily, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. When we obey the gospel, we enjoy life, don't we? As a matter of fact, we have the hope of life eternal. We enjoy life now because we have a relationship with the Lord. We're in fellowship with God. We have communion with him. More importantly, we have the hope of life eternal. In Titus chapter 1 verse 2, Paul said that we live in hope of life eternal, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began. And so John is saying that Jesus came that we might enjoy life. In him was life. I want to I just make this observation very quickly. We live in a pluralistic world. And there are a lot of people that have a lot, a lot of false theories about how to be saved and about the one through whom we're saved. Listen, the only person that can save us from sin is Jesus. He is the only one. Here's what, here's what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If we want to enjoy fellowship with God the Father, we, we only enjoy that through one person. That's Jesus. In Acts chapter 4 verse 12, here's what Luke recorded. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If we're going to be saved, it will only be through Jesus. It will only be in Jesus. It will only be by Jesus. He is the only one that can save. And so the idea that we can be saved by somebody else or some other, some other religion, that is false. Jesus is saying, I'm the way. I'm the only way. He is the only one that can give you life. Now, what is it we, we hope to gain from living a Christian life? Well, we want to enjoy a good quality of life while we're, we're here on earth, don't we? Peter talks about, in 1 Peter chapter 3, he that would love life and see good days. We want to enjoy a quality life. But beyond that, what is it we want? We want eternal life. We want to enjoy life now in Christ. And we want eternal life beyond this temporal life. In closing, there are only two possibilities. You can either be receptive to Jesus or you can reject him. Listen, if you would, to what John said. Verse 11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. You want to talk about one of the saddest commentaries in Scripture. It's found in John chapter 1, verse 11. The Jewish people, if anyone should have been able to identify the Messiah, if anyone should have been able to, to 
examine the evidence and come to the conclusion that this is the Son of God, they should have been the people. And yet John said they did not receive him. They rejected him. Listen to what he says in verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The new birth gives us life. The new birth puts us in the kingdom. And it's there that we enjoy a relationship with God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. I would hope and pray that we have a deep appreciation for the Word who became flesh. I'm not sure I can fully comprehend everything involved in Jesus leaving the glories of heaven to come to earth. But I know this, he came to earth for me and for you. He paid it all for us. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to come to Christ, believing that he is the Son of God, repenting of every sin, confessing his name before others, being immersed in a watery grave of baptism so that you might enjoy the remission, the forgiveness, the cleansing of every sin, Acts 22, 16. If you'll do that, the Bible says God will add you to the kingdom, to the church, Acts 2, 47. And if you're faithful until death, the promise is the crown of life, Revelation 2, 10. If you're here tonight, you're not faithful, your life's not what it ought to be, could we encourage you to come home? John said if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you come as we stand and sing?